All right, everyone, now it's time to take out our Bibles together. If you will, grab a copy of Scripture, turn with me to Mark chapter 1. We'll be in verses 12 and 13 here in just a moment. Mark chapter 1, verses 12 and 13. As is usual, the text that we're going to be looking at will not be up on the screen, so the references that we make to other places in Scripture will be, but the text, the main text, will not, so I think you will benefit most looking at it in your own copy of Scripture with us. Mark chapter 1, 12 through 13. Today we look at a showdown in the wilderness, if you will. We, we are suckers for a big showdown, are we not? In one week, the, the Super Bowl happens, and for the next seven days, all you're going to hear about on TV is Chiefs and Eagles. Chiefs and Eagles, Chiefs and Eagles, Chiefs and Eagles. I remember some big college basketball showdowns in my lifetime. You might remember some, too. Back in 2012, UK played Louisville in the Final Four, and I, it, it felt to me like the state was about to explode. In our lifetimes, or before some of our lifetimes even, there was Ali Frazier, there was Tyson Holyfield, and who could forget Hulk Hogan versus the Ultimate Warrior. I mean, you think the nation is divided now. When I was in high school, if we were playing Apollo, our crosstown rival that week, it was all anyone could think or talk about. We, we loved this stuff. A big showdown, Right? Well, that's what we're going to look at this week, the showdown in the wilderness between Christ and Satan himself. Mark chapter 1, 12 through 13, the temptation of Jesus. This is God's word. Mark writes, the spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness, and he was in the wilderness 40 days being tempted by Satan. And he was with the wild animals, and the angels were ministering to him. If you remember, Paul in Ephesians tells us to put on the armor of God. Well, that's kind of what we're doing today. Today we are putting on the armor of God and getting ready to fight this fight of faith that we are in, in this world. And we are doing so by looking at the temptation of Jesus and how he battled against Satan. I want you to notice immediately that this happened because of the leading of the Spirit. The leading of the Spirit. It says the Spirit immediately drove Jesus out into the wilderness. Mark says immediately there. Now one thing you're going to notice time and time again as we go through Mark is Mark loves that word, immediately. Mark is in a hurry to get the news out to us. You can see, if, if you remember the temptation of Jesus from maybe Matthew or Luke, Mark is very abbreviated in the way that he tells some of these these stories. And he says immediately over and over again, he's constantly moving the story along, but it gives us the sense that right after Jesus was baptized, right after he was baptized, the spirit leads him out into the wilderness. Do you remember when Jesus taught his disciples to pray in the model prayer? And one of the things he said was, lead us not into temptation. We are to pray that. Lead us not into temptation. But that's exactly what the spirit is doing to Jesus here. He is leading him into a temptation. In fact, Matthew 4.1 makes this very clear. It makes it crystal clear. It says in Matthew 4.1, Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. 
You see, here in Mark, you could say, well, it, it says the Spirit drove him out into the wilderness, and then maybe once he was there, the temptation happened. No, Matthew tells us explicitly, Matthew 4, 1, the purpose of the Spirit leading him out into the wilderness was so that he would be tempted by the devil. This is intentional on God's part. It is interesting that this is what happens immediately after Jesus' baptism. Last week, we talked about the ceremony that was his baptism, the ceremony to start, to launch his public ministry. And you would expect him after that to go and, and do it, to go do his public ministry. But there is something that he must do first, something that he must do first. And whereas that ceremony, that baptism was for all to see, it was in front of lots and lots of people. This next thing that Jesus must do, that God will have him do, is in secret. There's no one out there. He's alone. The only way that this actually comes down to us through the Gospels is because Jesus must have told some of his disciples the story. He must have told this to a few. But this is not for any to see. God does not need an audience for this. No, this is between Satan and Jesus. It's pretty amazing that we have this account because if Jesus had not told it to his disciples and they had not written it down, we would have never known, and many people did never know. Why would it be God's will that Jesus do this? Why would it be God's will that Jesus go out into the wilderness and be tempted by Satan? Well, we see from this text right here that God is issuing a challenge up front. God is calling out the devil here. Jesus is calling out the devil. He goes out into the wilderness and he takes away his security and his strength. Jesus takes away his own. God takes it away, you could say. His security, he's not with anyone else. He's not with his family members. He's not with his friends. He's alone in the wilderness. And then he takes away his strength. We know from Matthew's account and from Luke's account that Jesus was fasting for 40 days before the devil came to tempt him. He had no food for 40 days, and at the end of that period, Satan comes and begins to tempt him. And it is, it is as if God is saying to Satan, we're going to take away his security, we're going to take away his strength, and you come and do your worst. I'm issuing you a challenge. I'm calling you out. It's like in the Rocky movies, where Apollo Creed or Clubber Lang's calling out Rocky, trying to get him to, to fight them. It's like if a king was to bring uh, an army to the gates of a city, and then call out and challenge the people of that city to war and to try to incite them to come out. That's exactly what God is doing to Satan. He's calling him out. Now, this is never something that we are to do. This is never something that we are to do. In our own strength, we do not have what it takes to stand up to Satan with our security and our strength taken away from us. We do not take the arrogant approach that we are going to call out Satan, but God does. And he does it right here, and he does it here on purpose. Because this is, the, this is part of the start of Jesus' ministry. God is serving notice to Satan for what Jesus is here to do. But we need to learn a lesson from this. We need to take a lesson away for ourselves and our own lives. Do not think that the Spirit always leads us into what is pleasant and easy. 
Do not think that the Spirit will always lead you into what is pleasant and what is easy. Sometimes the Spirit will lead you into suffering. Sometimes the Spirit of God will lead you into heartache. Sometimes the Spirit will lead you into persecution. And sometimes God will drive us to our knees. He will refine us with fire. He will purify and purge us of sin and of self-reliance. It is foolish and unbiblical to think that because life is going smoothly, that means you must be in the will of God. It is foolish and, and, and unbiblical to think those two things necessarily go together. Sometimes when life is going smoothly, you are in the will of God. Not necessarily, though. It could be, but not necessarily. We often think that when everything falls into place, that's our confirmation that this was the will of God. How many times have we said something like that? How many times have we heard something like that? Looking back, everything just fell into place. And that means it must have been the will of God. No, my friends. Sometimes Satan is smoothing the road to get you exactly where he wants you to be. And sometimes God is calling you to do hard things for him and for his glory. Do not think that the Spirit always leads us into what is pleasant and what is easy. Jesus was often in tough situations, and he was exactly where God wanted him to be. If you remember the Apostle Paul, he suffered immensely during his life as a Christian, and it was all exactly as God planned for the good of his kingdom and even for the good of Paul. You see this. Not just for the good of the kingdom, for the good of Paul himself. So do not fall into this unbiblical thinking that we are supposed to have pleasant and easy lives if we are in the will of God. Now, sometimes the further you get into the will of God, the more suffering you will experience, the more pain. Sometimes that is God's plan for us. And so the next time money is tight, the next time you feel overwhelmed as a parent, the next time you've got a loved one who needs round-the-clock care and it seems that they are in their last months, the next time you've got a high-pressure situation at work, or the next time it seems like you've got one health problem after another, don't automatically think this must be Satan's doing. It actually might be God's will for your holiness and your purity and your strength. And there's a deep encouragement there. There's a really deep encouragement there. Because if God calls us to something, he will give us what we need to get through it. If it's God that's called us to hardship, suffering, what have you, he will give us what we need to get through it. If it's for our good, and we know the Lord works everything for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose. We know the Lord works everything according to the plan of his perfect will. If he calls us to something like that, he'll give us everything we need to get through it to persevere and to hold on through it. And so 
We have the leading of the Spirit on the one hand, but on the other hand in our text, we also have the attack of Satan. The leading of the Spirit on one hand, but the attack of Satan on the other. We cannot deny there are times when Satan attacks. Even though the Spirit led Jesus into the wilderness, he led him into a place where he knew that he would be tempted, that he would be attacked by the evil one. Satan attacks, brothers and sisters. And we need to be ready. We need to be prepared. We need to study his methods. We need to know our enemy. And our text shows us that Satan attacks when we are weak. Satan attacks when we are weak. He came to Jesus when Jesus was weak. As we said before, God calls out Satan and Jesus' security and his strength has been taken away. He's alone. He's in the wilderness. Matthew tells us and Luke tells us he's been fasting for 40 days without food before Satan shows up to attack. He's hungry, he's weak, both physically and mentally, and that's when Satan comes to him. Satan will come to us when we are weak. He will attack more frequently when you are weak. Satan did not come to Jesus when he was surrounded by friends and family. He did not come to Jesus after he had had eight hours of sleep and a nice hearty breakfast. He came when he was weak. At the end of a frustrating day at work or with your kids, Satan is more prone to attack. When you haven't slept well, you are vulnerable, and Satan knows this. You are more irritable. You are not thinking as clearly as you once were. You don't have many of the strengths that you have when you have slept well. Satan attacks. When you're grieving the loss of a loved one, And so many things are out of whack. Satan attacks. When you are alone and away from the strength of others and away from the accountability of others, Satan attacks. He knows when we are vulnerable. He attacks more often when we are weak. And he attacks especially when we have not been spending consistent time with the Lord. When we have not been abiding in Christ and in his word. When we have not been reading our Bibles and praying consistently. When we are not close to the Lord, he will attack. And this means we must do what Hebrews 3.12 tells us. We must take care. Take care. Take care of yourself. And by that, I do not mean the the, the modern day version of self-care. Right? You deserve all of this Self-care, that's not what we're talking about. We've got to take care of ourselves so that we're ready to fight this fight. We've got to take care of ourselves. We've got to take care of our bodies, our physical bodies, because your body and your soul is connected, right? We're not a, a dualistic being. We're a unity, one person walking around. Our body and soul is connected. Satan knows this. And so the, the less we sleep, the more junk food we eat, the less strength we have, that's when Satan comes at us. We've got to take care of ourselves as much as we can. But most importantly, we must take care of our souls. We must take care of our souls. We must keep ourselves close to God through prayer, through Bible reading, through worship, through fellowship with other believers. And to do that regularly, consistently. We are like those phones you carry around in your pocket every day. What do we have to do every night to that phone? We've got to plug it in. We've got to charge it up. 
and then we take it off the charger in the morning, and we go about using it throughout the day, and the battery just depletes, right? It's, it's what we are like. That's us. We need to connect to the source of our strength every day and charge up. That's Bible reading. That's prayer. Time with the Lord. Charge up. Get ready. There's more fight to be done. The longer you go without it, the weaker you become and the more vulnerable you are to Satan's attacks. And so he attacks most often when we are weak. Satan's also a a cunning and challenging adversary because he changes his method of attack. He often changes his method of attack when he comes at us. If you remember, he gave Jesus three different temptations. Mark's account, again, is more abbreviated, but in the other accounts of Jesus' temptation, Satan gave three different kinds of temptation to Jesus. He appealed to Jesus' flesh. He said, turn this stone into bread and then stop your fast. He appealed to greed, even though Jesus didn't have greed within him. He appealed to that human weakness, Satan did. And he he told Jesus, he showed him all of the the lands, and he said, all this can be yours if you bow down and worship me. And he appealed to pride. Again, Jesus having none, but it's a human weakness. Satan appeals to pride and takes Jesus to the top of the temple and says, throw yourself down. And God's angels will come and save you. God won't let you strike your foot against a stone. He appealed to the flesh. He appealed to greed. He appealed to pride. The same three categories that John, the apostle, mentions in 1 John 2, 15 through 16, where he says, Do not love the world or anything in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. And then 1 John 2, 16, he says, For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and pride of life. You see those three. The desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, pride of life, three temptations of Jesus, three categories right there in 1 John 2.16. If you go back to the Garden of Eden and Satan's temptation there, you can see all three categories in Adam and Eve's temptation with Satan. And all of this, John says, is not from the Father, but is from the world. Satan varies up his attack. He will change his method of attack. He is crafting and cunning. One of the consistent themes that came out of the time that our armed forces spent over in Iraq and Afghanistan was that we did not know our enemy. We did not know our enemy. Their tactics surprised and confused us. They did not fight like we expected them to fight. Satan is the same way. He's changing his his approach all the time. Just when you think you've started to gain a victory over Satan in one area, he attacks you in another. Think of a young man who spends years fighting against lust. Years. And just when he starts to feel some sense of victory, his life changes and now money and greed are more tempting than ever. Think of a young woman who fights for so long against self-condemnation. And then comes out the other side only to find a battle against pride and judgmentalism. He changes his method of attack. Brothers and sisters, Satan and his demons will never sleep. They will never stop. They will never let up until we die or until Jesus comes back. Now you hear that 
And it's deflating. It's discouraging. That this is never going to end. This is never going to end. But there is hope in this. There is hope in this. The longer you walk with Christ, if your relationship with him is growing deeper and more intimate as the the months and the years go by, you will become stronger and stronger in the spirit. And Satan will find it increasingly difficult to to get you to give in to temptation. If you walk with Christ and you walk closely with him, but not just walk with him, you have to be growing. Your, your relationship with him has to be increasing. You have to be growing deeper within your relationship with him, more intimate, closer to him. The more you do that, the more knowledge of his word that you take in, the more time you spend with him, the stronger you will grow in the spirit and the harder it will be for Satan to get you to give in to temptation. Find hope, find encouragement in that. But to do that, it takes effort. It takes effort, brothers and sisters. It takes discipline. It takes us taking a hard look at our lives and making sure that we put the priority on time with God that it takes, that it requires, so that we can consistently grow. We can consistently abide in Christ and stay plugged into the source. And slowly but surely, if you do, you will find That Satan's attacks don't feel as daunting. They don't feel as impossible to defend or to resist. And so, the attack of Satan, know your enemy. He is cunning. He is strong. He is intelligent. But if we hold on to Christ, we have the spirit inside of us that is stronger and greater than he. Greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world. And so we've seen the the leading of the Spirit. We've seen the attack of Satan. But I want to end today with the victory of Christ. The victory of Christ. The Spirit leads the Son out into the wilderness with the Father's strength and approval. And the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, calls out Satan for battle. And Jesus takes Satan's best shot. And comes out the other side unharmed and undefeated. This wilderness temptation is the son of God serving notice to the devil that he is here to defeat him. And he serves notice emphatically. Satan gets an upfront message. You are going down. And it begins here. This is Jesus doing what Adam could not. See the parallels here. This wilderness temptation is Jesus doing what Adam could not. In Romans 5, Paul talks about how Jesus is the second Adam. The second Adam. Adam, the first man, represented the entire human race. And he failed because of his disobedience. He yielded to temptation. And it brought a curse upon us all. And separated us from God. But Jesus also represents the entire human race. And he did not fail. He obeyed fully. He never yielded to Satan's temptations. And because of his obedience, we do not have a curse. We have life. It brings life to us. And it reconciles us back 
to God. My seminary professor, Dr. Jack Cottrell, wrote a book on the Holy Spirit called Power from on High. In that book, he writes, Satan did not initiate this confrontation. God did. When the Spirit impelled Jesus into the wilderness. And as the second Adam, he is beginning, right here, he is beginning his work of crushing the serpent's head, Genesis 3.15, and reversing the curse of Eden. He is beginning his work of binding the devil, Matthew 12.29, and rendering him powerless, Hebrews 2.14. As the messianic king, he is confronting his enemies, Psalm 2, and setting up his kingdom, Matthew 12.28. All of that is happening right here in the wilderness, in the temptation of Jesus. Last week, we saw how Jesus' baptism points forward to his death. His baptism points forward to his death, so also this temptation points forward. Because at the end, Satan once again attacked when Jesus was at his weakest point. Beginning with Jesus' suffering and prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane. His attack started there. Jesus' weakness, perhaps his weakest point. And the temptation was to not go through with it. To not go through with it. To not be obedient to the Father to the end. To refuse to take God's wrath for the sin of the world. And then came the cross. And as Jesus was on the cross, the temptation was to stop it. To come down. It was excruciating when he was up there. More excruciating than any of us can even imagine. Because, yes, the the physical pain was there. Yes, he had his hands And his feet nailed to the cross. And that was the only thing holding him up there. Yes, he had open wounds that were bleeding. And yes, he was struggling to breathe. Asphyxiation is is what eventually killed people in a crucifixion. All of that was true. But at the same time, it was the spiritual suffering of God's wrath being poured out. Full strength upon Jesus for the sins of the world. And then came the mockers, speaking with the words of Satan. He saved others. Let him save himself. If he really is the Christ, the chosen one, let him save himself. Saying this out loud, shouting it at Jesus as he's on the cross. You who would destroy the temple and raise it in three days, save yourself if you really are the son of God. If you come down from there, we will believe in you. Oh, the temptation. The temptation to end his suffering. And the temptation to prove the mockers and the doubters wrong right then and there. And to see them cower at his power and his glory as he called down 10,000 angels and shut their mouths. The temptation to take vengeance into his own hands and to silence every one of them. But he didn't. He stayed. He stayed on the cross. He suffered. And he was obedient even unto death. To the very end. And then came Sunday morning. Remember the temptation of Jesus. Is God serving notice to Satan. You are going down. Then came Sunday morning. The ultimate victory. Not even death could stop this man. He rose in glory and triumph, 
Satan's moment of lowest humiliation was the moment of our Lord's highest joy. The cross was a victory in itself, yes. The cross was a victory, but in the moment it looked like a defeat. It was not until the resurrection that we are able to look back at the cross and see it for the victory that it was. It's the resurrection that is the victory of Jesus in the face of Satan. This is why Easter is the most joyful celebration of the Christian calendar. It's the victory over sin and death of our Savior who is alive and who reigns forevermore. But brothers and sisters, we don't have to wait till Easter to celebrate it. It's a celebration every Sunday. We meet on Sunday mornings because he rose on Sunday morning. The victory was cemented on a Sunday morning. And friends, because Jesus was victorious over Satan, that means one day you can be too. One day, you can be too if you just hold on. Hold on. Hold on to Christ. Hold on a little longer. We're almost there. We're almost there. It's just a little bit longer. Hold on. Don't give in. Don't yield. Don't let go. And one day it will all be over. And we will stand in victory along with him. And we will reign with him forever. Right now we're going to spend a few moments in prayer. And we ask that you spend this time in response to the, what, whatever the Lord has laid on your heart. Respond to him. Pray to him. Pour your heart out to him. Speak back to him as he has just spoken to you. And after a few moments of prayer where we all respond individually, we'll have a, a time where we invite those who need to respond to God's word publicly can do so. But for a few minutes now, let's pray.